As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm going to roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition. This new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open curtains. Haters swerving because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down. I just got to get up, get up. You're listening to the Tom Fickler Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Good morning, everyone. And that, that melodious voice you heard is Harry from our station manager, WNHH 103.5 FM. And Harry was kind enough, and I don't think he minds us sharing that he's recovering from COVID. And I, I share that to say, just, you know, be, be alert, folks. We are still up in the midst of things. So just, just be alert, you know, be cognizant, be, be, be proactive. I mean, today's show actually is about being cognizant and proactive and alert. We're going to talk with Dr. Cece Calhoun and Reverend Dr. Leroy Perry and Reverend Elvin Clayton are joining us. And uh, Dr. Calhoun is the Assistant Professor of Medicine, Hematology, Medical Director of Sickle Cell Program at Yale University Medical School. Uh, and I mentioned Dr. Calhoun in terms of promotion for this show. I shared it with a lot of people that um, this show is not about life and death, but it's definitely about enhanced life. It's definitely about the quality of life. So I didn't not to shock people. And there's so much we can talk about on the air and in the social media, et cetera, uh, about the crisis that's going on in the, in the world, whether there's nuclear bombs being really being, being shot or th- considered to be, to be launched. But uh, while we're here on the planet and able to breathe and, and, and share and look at each other in the face, let, let's, let's, uh, I'm just so blessed to do this show where we're focusing on, on life issues. What does, what does it mean to be healthy and, and, and thrive? Not just survive, but thrive. And you've been involved, Dr. Calhoun, with thriving issues, with survival issues, with prospering issues in terms of uh, health and sickle cell in particular, and the challenges of the sickle cell disease. Just before, uh, Dr. Calhoun, that, that I plunge in, um, some of the staff was kind enough to share with me statistics about who has the trait and who has. And when I saw these t- statistics, that's one thing. But when I do a show, two or three days before I do a show, I walk around and talk to people and see if I'm going to do this topic. And at least 50 to 60% of the people that said we're going to do a show on sickle cell said they know of someone or someone has the trait. So I think these statistics are a little bit under underreported in terms of the prevalence, but it doesn't matter. Even, wow. if one per, even if just one person has sickle cell, that's one person too many. And in terms of the discovery and the science and the health research that you're involved with, it's just so such a pleasure to have you here for the next 45 to the 50 minutes. Um, this is, uh, September is, is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, but again, you've dedicated your life 24-7, 365 to, to sickle cell being a, being a, pre, a preoccupation, uh, your, your every breathing and waking moment. Uh, so it gets a pleasure to, to have you here. Um, but just just tell, and again, I just wanted to let people know also that you were kind enough to be on this show previously, and uh, we promoted the and the, but 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 you you've received the promotion since then I'm I'm told so that, have, that, yeah. that, that that that's a good thing that's a good thing yeah. I'm promoted to the position of medical director for the sickle cell program medical director for the sickle cell program what does that mean I mean I'm assuming you're getting a little more money but I mean you can give it to Dr Perry or or, or Dr Clayton or, or your philanthropy but, but but share with us the good news about your new position as the <laughs> medical director for the sickle cell program. Well, firstly, thank you for having me back um, and thanking you for having me back with Reverend Dr. Clayton and um, Harry. They're my best crew to talk to and with, <laughs> so I'm thankful to be here. Um, but most 
importantly, thank you for giving a platform for awareness for sickle cell. And, and truly, you're, the principle of thriving is something that's important to me in the work I do every day and my own research and my clinical practice. And so, um, and, you know, just how we care for one another as Black people. Um, and I also totally agree with you about those statistics. We often quote um, a study that was published in 2017. That's kind of like a landmark study that we use in the literature talking about background. Um, but we know that um, there's probably increased um, incidence and increased prevalence as we think about new um, treatments and therapies. Um, so for me, I did get a promotion, very exciting, very fun year. Um, but for me, the biggest change I think is the ability to have impact and influence. And a priority of mine is engaging our patients and our whole community, those with and without sickle cell and wrapping around the ones we love who have trait or who have um, sickle cell disease. Um, I think there is so much we do in the medical space but we know that people live full lives outside of when they're at their appointments or getting their treatments. And there's a whole other side of sickle cell disease, awareness, life experience that you really only get from patients and community um, that I really hope to really partner with, learn from, kind of, you know, just as, you know, Reverends uh, Clayton and Perry have done in any other scientific settings. I really want to do that as medical director with our sickle cell community and amplify their voice. So yes, uh, more influence um, and more ability to make change. That's kind of how I view it um, and, and be able to do some redesigning and, and building in our in our program here. I, I want to appreciate your sharing that. I want to ask how many people you, you see, but even that's not a fair question because even if you see one person, you're seeing that person's network, you're seeing their, their grandma, their people that are around them that you don't. So, so but just generally, how, how's, how's the, the flow coming in terms of number of folks that you're You've, you've had a chance to to, to bless and, and, and to share your presence with. You are so insightful. You know, I think like Sickle Cell Impacts, not just the person, but their whole community and um, support network, like many things. Um, so here at Yale New Haven Health System in the adult program, we have about like 260 active patients. So we may have had a point of contact with over 300, but ones that we care for regularly, it's about 260. And it's about the same on the pediatric side. So I actually see both pediatric and adult patients. Mm -hmm. So we cover both of, of, of those um, those spaces. And the bulk of our patients in the state of Connecticut are here. We have great colleagues um, like Bari and Demarium up at UConn who also cares for sickle cell patients too. And I see, I see Reverend, Reverend Perry's a pensive face. So I know that that means he's, he has a question that kind of come in, but I want to just, when you mentioned pediatrics, some people might, that might, they may not even believe or understand that young folks. So, so tell us about, you, you typically you think of sickle cell as the adult kind of phenomenon. But when you mention pediatrics here, I mean, this is just something that people need to know about. Yes. Well, you know, sickle cell disease is an inherited disorder. That means that people are born with it. It's not something that you catch or you come across. And so actually in the kind of like late seventies, there were really two peaks of death. It was mm. a big peak in infancy ages, like one to four, our babies mm. were dying. Mm. And then it started to rise in young adulthood. But because of multi-center trials, we found that if we identify sickle cell babies or babies with sickle cell early, we start them on 
um, prophylactic penicillin or antibiotics to cover infection, really we keep our children alive until mm. adulthood. Mm. But that peak of morbidity really starts and continues to rise around adolescence and young adulthood, which is why that's where my research focus is. Cause I'm mm -hmm. like, we gotta do something about this part now. You know, mm. I know that um, even though we've been able to do well for our babies and we will continue to do well for our children, it's important for us because the life expectancy is still only about 43 years of age. Mm. That is strikingly mm. and unacceptably low. So, mm. you know, um, it's important for us now to really add to our focus and making sure our, our young adults are, are safe. So, um, yeah, so your sickle cell is inherited, so you're born with it. Um, and in the United States, African-American pediatrician, Charles Witten from Detroit, which is where I'm from, um, mm -hmm. we have um, leveraged the power of the newborn screen. So now if, a, if a, ch a child is born in a hospital, they do a little heel prick or finger prick, get a little drop of blood, and it tests for many genetic disorders, one of those being sickle cell, and it allows us to wrap our kids in, in subspecialty care early, give them what they need to survive um, into young adulthood. Excellent. And Reverend Perry, just before I bring you in, I guess it just, just dawns on me, uh, Dr. Calhoun, that although you, we can assume that people know what sickle cell disease is, but I've done the show for seven years and I'm still finding people that are just discovering me mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and just discovering even what, what sickle cell means. So share with, share with us a little bit, just what, what is the, 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 the this, this sickle cell disease and, and why are African-Americans kind of uh, predisposed to, to, to carry this, this particular gene? So if any of my patients are listening, they're probably gonna roll their eyes because I use the same description all the time. Okay, and it always has to do with food. So a normal red blood cell, um, which is our red when our red in our blood, we have three kinds of cells. We have our white blood cells, those help us fight infection. We have our red blood cells that carry oxygen to our body, give us energy, make sure all of our tissues, organs, we are alive and thriving. And then we have our platelets, which nobody ever talks about, but basically that's the cell that makes sure that we don't go gushing blood if we get a paper cut or a nosebleed. And sickle cell affects the red blood cell. So a normal red blood cell kind of looks like a jelly donut. Um, mm. the, the sciencey name is a biconcave disc, but it's round, kind of flat, it's very squishy, malleable. When you have sickle cell disease, instead of your red blood cells looking like a jelly donut, they look like a banana or a crescent or um, a sickle, which is what you know people used to use to harvest crops. Um, and in addition to being shaped differently, they're also very rigid they're very sticky and they're very sharp. So if you think about your blood vessels as pipes, right? You got your jelly donut cells kind of swimming through in your plasma, taking mm -hmm. oxygen to every part of your body where it needs to go, keeping them healthy. If you replace greater than 50% of those, which is in many of our patients with those rigid, brittle, sticky, misshapen cells, they're maybe going through the sides of the pipe, scratching it up, causing inflammation mm. or sticking to the sides of the pipe, sticking to one another and preventing blood from going through. And so when we think about all of the clinical manifestations or complications of sickle cell disease, it's that lack of oxygen, that inflammation that really causes many of, of mm. the, the, um, the uh, complications we see, mm -hmm. um, including the most common presenting, which is pain. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, the importance of platforms like your show um, and having an awareness month is that 
like you said, many people in our, a lot of people in our community are affected by sickle cell, but not many people know what it is, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's a silent disorder. And so people can be going through those complications and really, they look fine from the outside, Mm -hmm. you know, but are really, really, you know, working to, 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 to live a healthy life. And you say, well, why do we have sickle cell disease? So it's actually an evolutionary trait, right? Mm -hmm. I'm telling you that, hey, it makes our red blood cells look different. You know, in any country where malaria, which is a a parasite that lives inside of the red blood cell is prevalent, our body said, you can't live in my red blood cell if it looks different. Mm. So it really, we developed it to protect us from malaria. So that's um, many of the countries in West Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, India, um, it's a Mediterranean nation. And um, you're like, hey, but we in the United States. So when people usually ask me this, I usually pause, but I, I feel this is a safe and candid space. How do we get sickle cell in the US? Uh, slavery, y'all. <laughs> Transatlantic <laughs> slave trade, okay? That's how we got over yep. here. Okay? Economic, so, economics and geopolitics. Okay, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So anywhere, it is a disease of Africans on the diaspora, whether that's the US, whether that's our uh, island nations, um, that is why sickle cell continues to remain prevalent. Excellent, wow. excellent, Reverend Perry. Can I can I share? It's good, good to see you. And and it's just it's we've been doing the shows for for a few years now, and it's just amazed me the commitment of you and Reverend Clayton and the cultural ambassadors to 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 the ministry. I mean, you guys are ministers. I mean, you're you're, you're proud of that. Every Sunday, you kind of remind people also during the week that that you that you that you carry that role. But also during, but 24-7, 365, you're concerned about people's life. You guys have done a ton of funerals. If I could just make a personal comment, you know, you've done a ton of funerals. So you see what's what's cooking in terms of this life and death nexus. So so, so why, why, why are you here today, R- R- Reverend Perry? Uh, I'm here today to be with Cece. <laughs> Me too, but I, I believe she right. has. A, she, but we're members of the fan club, that's clear. And, and you know, we're going to renew our, our, our annual dues. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, and see, I think that um, I think you you touched on earlier the dark side of uh, of the inequity that somehow is prevalent in the field of medicine and research with regards to Black um, and African Americans and minorities. I looked at the article with you and Krishna Murte. Uh, CC and I, um, it just brought again out to me, there is a dark side. I'm so glad that you, you mentioned the African part because people think in terms of religion that when a person has something, uh, God gave it to them and so it's a curse or, you know, and people look at it, but they don't understand the genesis, which you, the evolutionary genesis that you broke down. Africans in the rice fields, they had to be in water, water there all day. And then the mosquitoes come and then, you know, the malaria. But it's, it's good to know that because now we shed some light on that. But the darker side is, is what you mentioned in the article, how cystic fibrosis, for example, gets so much money for research. And when it comes to sickle cell and diseases that may affect African-Americans, there is the funding is not the same. Um, one of the other things that you said in the article, two things. One, you said there was... Um, in 2017, there were three new medications. And then the other thing about the gene therapy. And one last thing, and I, I want you to talk about the gene therapy because that, that, that's really interesting. I know Howard University just gave a uh, um, million dollars or more grant to do 
gene therapy with African-Americans. So that's gonna be powerful. I also know that in 1996, New York required that babies who were born to African-Americans would be tested for sickle cell. I think, is that a national thing now? Is it done in Connecticut? Yeah, so that's the newborn screen I was uh, mentioning. So I think really, you know, I don't want to get this particular fact wrong. I, I'm going to just be broad. It was in the 80s that uh, <laughs> that we started nationally. I think we have all all states and the newborn screen um, that tests for uh, many things. But one of them is every baby, like even if, you know, because we're a very um, heterogeneous population, you know, so you may not look and I'm throwing up the quotes look black or whatever, but you know, you can have traits or have a, in fact, have sickle cell disease. So yeah, we we test everybody born in the hospital. Excellent. Reverend Clayton, it's good to see you this morning. And and again, I just want to give, you guys have to bear with me. I just feel like I just want to give out some some, some props and roses to everyone. I th hope folks understand that Reverend Clayton and Reverend Perry work on Sundays and Mondays are typically the day off for, for, for many ministries. And, <laughs> And legitimately, because they're working all the time. So for you guys to be so consistent and diligent on a Monday morning, I just want to salute you as well. But Reverend Clayton, good morning. Any thoughts on what you've heard thus far or questions for Dr. Calhoun? Yes, sir. Uh, CC, you made it so clear uh, that uh, a part of your talk this morning that uh, the sickle cell patient, they look good. They, they, they go through life, they work, um, they handle their business. And, and it almost looks as though all of a sudden when they have this, this issue with, with sickle cell, their body is uh, wrapped with pain and people sometimes don't even believe these people. Mm -hmm. And so for you to, to bring it up so clearly as to why uh, the, the internal thing that goes on with the blood is so important. So I appreciated that comment so greatly. Thank you so much. Yes, let me just say this also. Reverend Clayton and I were at an institute for the National Association of Black Nurses. And while we were there, one of the mothers came up to us and said that her daughter was going to a hospital in Yale. It may have been the sickle cell clinic. And the doctor in charge, when she went in, would not give her drugs because he said you are that she was only going there to get drugs. And this is part of the dark side that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like the stigma that even medical doctors who, who ought to know better would associate um, a sickle cell patient as a drug addict. And these, per these persons were, you know, and, and can be in tremendous pain. And this is what the mother said. She said, she said, my daughter was in extreme pain. And this mm -hmm. is the kind of stigmatized treatment that she received at Yale. Of course, mm -hmm. we reported this to Tisha, who also took it up to some other people to mm -hmm. investigate this. And, um, but I mean, there is that dark side. And, mm -hmm. and, and not only the stigma of being maybe a drug addict or being in pain, it's people just don't understand um, the, 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 the depth of, of, um, of pain, mm -hmm. not only physical, but mental as well, mm -hmm. that, th that these people have to carry. And so maybe, because we were trying to get, um, on your show, Tom, we were trying to get a sickle cell person to come on mm -hmm. and um, share with us their experience. It was very hard to find one because the stigma, mm -hmm. you know, 
is, is part of what keeps people from wanting to share their story because they're going to be judged one way or another, either as a person who you should pity or a person who has got a problem and, uh, and, and opiates is, is, is one of the solutions. Well, Doc, uh, even in my, in my congregation, I, I had a member that uh, was, sick, was a sickle cell patient. And the difficulty he was having is, is the same as the, the, the mother shared with us uh, at that convention. And the mm -hmm. trouble he was having was, like most meds, you have a certain amount of time before you can get the next uh, prescription filled. And, and when you're in pain, um, it, it's very difficult for these people to, to say, well, I, I can't. I, I can't take the pill because or because I'm I'm in pain, and and the insurance companies and the pharmacists uh, need to change the way they um, prescribe these medications for these people. I, I don't know if CC could address that some way, but um, his, his struggles was when he was in pain he couldn't get meds, yeah. and when and when he would go to uh, the, the pharmacist or call his doctor, there was always a delay. So, so can I jump in? Do you mind? Yes, you can. Okay. So I think you both have covered a few. I had to take a, I had to write down some key points here because to make sure I get to them, but there are a couple things. Um, one of the reasons I feel most fortunate to work with sickle cell patients is because I feel that the strides we make in this community will affect our whole community. Because the issues that you all are talking about, about stigma, about access to care, about shared decision-making and how you're treated by physicians and how you engage with them, it's a lot of Black people that have those same problems, you know? And I think our awareness has increased and, um, you know, thanks to champions like you all, you know, we're able to move science forward as well. Um, but how we treat sickle cell patients is mostly how we treat, like how black people get treated. Even me as a doctor, if I don't lead with that and I don't sometimes, I'll be treated differently, you know? Um, and it's completely unacceptable. So when it comes specifically to the patients and populations I treat, so for me, technically, you know, I, we, we talk about this term of intersectionality and it, it manifests in my own work because I'm a black woman, I care for black patients. I'm also in this healthcare system. And so I can see the re-education of my colleagues that needs to happen about sickle cell disease, about how patients experience pain, about appropriate treatment of pain. There are guidelines from the National Institute of Health, National Heart Lung Blunt Institute that say, if somebody comes into the emergency department with sickle cell, you give them IV pain medication ASAP. These are evidence-based guidelines, okay? But we have to put these into practice. You know, we have to educate, I have to educate my colleagues. And then spaces like this, where we're also educating our community, right? So we, we let go of that stigma too, um, where we educate everybody about what sickle cell disease is. That's one of the ways we advocate for our patients so that they don't have to be suffering from sickle cell, having pain, having other complications and be the people responsible for, for that education piece. You know, I think that is one big thing. And then one of the other things I think is this whole process and the, you know, and I'm um, like health outcomes research, we call it shared decision-making, but it's basically like, you know, talking with your treating physician, making it coming to a consensus together, especially when there's not a right or wrong answer. Because when I talk to patients about hydroxyurea, which 
for decades is the only uh, disease modifying drug that we have for sickle cell disease. I can't tell them why it works. I can give them statistics about how it'll make their life last longer. Literally, I have data for that. But if they don't want to do it, then I can prescribe everything I want. <laughs> I go take it at home, right? And so I use that example because it's a little bit less stigmatized than pain meds, but it's an example of like how if you are a healthcare provider, you have to really understand the whole person, not just like a patient with a disease, because that's how you actually get to getting the best possible outcome, the thriving that we were talking about earlier. That's how you get to it. Um, and I think with sickle cells, particularly with pain, like we talked about is silent. There are no, and I have to write this in like actual medical records often, there are no objective signs of pain. You have to believe the patient when they tell you what's going on, mm. you know? And then I think the other piece is people remember the worst rather than the best. They'll mm -hmm. take one person who maybe, you know, was not their best and apply that to a whole population, mm. you know? Wow. And, that's, and, mm. and, you know, like it, it compromises our ability as healthcare providers to give good care. And so working on that unconscious bias is something that mm. we're working we're working to do i'm working with some actually a couple of colleagues from yale who were here before just holding our own colleagues accountable mm. in, in, in that space um and look look so i have to go back to my notes here <laughs> i think i hit all my things but you know i i the work we do with sickle cell patients it applies to oh that's what i wanted to say you made a comment about um pain and you know there's actually literature that shows that physician there's a study done amongst healthcare providers that that they thought that black people experience pain differently mm. this is published in a medical journal y'all mm. in the 2000s you know mm. and so you know i think it means it is another example that we have a lot of work to do um but you know we we are a community of survivors of resilient people of innovators and so that's kind of like my hope in terms of how I why I know we're going to do better because it's not just sickle cell warriors who are fighting this battle every day but you know it's the people in this environment right now that are we are committed we're standing with people who have sickle cell we are holding people accountable in every space we're in and we're going to move the field forward so. you know Dr. Uh, Cece I think that you know the um, it's just it's systemic, and because you know I, I was reading Henrietta uh, Harry Washington's book on medical apartheid, and one of the experiments that they did during the South, the doctors all agreed that black people could handle pain better than anybody else, and so they would not give like the women they wouldn't give them any anesthetic when they were working on them or treating them, so it's it's kind of crazy. And how do we change that? How do we change the new students, medical <laughs> students, into believing, you know, that, hey, it's a new day. And unless we get more people like you and more people like us involved, it's not gonna happen. Yeah, you hit on a lot. I mean, it's absolutely systemic. We know that kind of our societal discrimination, racism, um, those injustices, they inform our policies, right? And our policies really inform our environment, like what we have access to. And those environments inform our risk factors, right? They inform our diagnosis and treatment and how we access care. So 
you know, I uh, had the chance to talk to some Yale School of Public Health students a while ago. And they're like, okay, how do I get involved in the health equity? And I said, mm. wherever you are, when you're standing up for the right thing, you will be impacting it. Because mm. it's, a, it's a long mm. pipeline, like mm. you said, that starts even before medical school, mm. you know? Um, mm. How our kids get access to different education, what they aspire to be, what they see, you know, all of those things eventually have end games. And one of them is better healthcare for sickle cell patients. Indeed. You know, but it, it is all intimately connected. Dr. Kelton, let me just, I mean, I was really fascinated to kind of listen to everyone's discussion and input and, and, and real wisdom. But I was curious, Dr. Kelton, if you would share a little, little bit about maybe weaving together your, some of the new treatment options in, 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 the, in conjunction with your, with your research as well, because although there, it's, it, there's a dark side, it, you know, I, I kind of love the, the light, the light and brightness that you're bringing uh, to, to the darkness. So maybe share with us a little bit about your research and, and new, tre new treatment options. Listen, I'm no Reverend Clayton or Perry. I'm not mobilizing and inspiring the folks with biblical text, but <laughs> I do know a little bit of science, just a little bit, and I'm trying to learn more. So, um, <clears throat> so, so um, really up until a few years ago, we kind of had only one disease modify one thing that actually treated sickle cell versus the complications and that's hydroxyurea which works by telling your bone marrow which is where we make all the cells in our blood to make fat juicy big fat jelly donut cells rather than sickle cell um, but over the past five years we we got endari which is a um, amino acid l-glutamine um, that works to decrease pain then we got oxbrida or voxellator, which is a drug that increases hemoglobin and in that way really works to modify disease, right? Because many patients, with, most patients with sickle cell are, are anemic. Then we got adecbeo or crizomlizumab, which is an infusion treatment that we use to prevent pain. Um, and we've had bone marrow transplant, which is the only cure for sickle cell disease for quite some time, but there are many scholars working to make that safer. But then we also introduced gene therapy, mm. um, which is where we can take our own, all right, let me use the term, hematopoietic stem cells. So this is not a stem cell that's gonna, you're gonna put in a petri dish and grow a person. It's not happening like that. It is the parent cell of all those cells in our blood, okay? Those are in our bone marrow. And with gene therapy, we can take someone's own parent blood mm. cells out and then modify them and fix the genetic error or genetic change, excuse me, that causes sickle cell mm -hmm. using different techniques outside of the body. Yeah, yeah, science, right? It's amazing. And then we give it back to that person allow those newer, those corrected cells to replicate and thus eliminating sickle cell disease in a person. Now, I'm, that is, I want y'all to know that is a simplification. Okay, I've made that mm -hmm. very, there are lots of nuances and steps and safety um, that goes into that. And as we start to open trials here at Yale, Dr. Krishnamurti, um, who is our uh, P, uh, pediatrician uh, in chief of our PTMOC section, excuse me, he uh, is really, really leading that here locally for us so we can give that access to our, pa uh, to our patients with sickle cell here. But as we start to learn more about that process, we make it more safe. We get to go into detail. We figure out who's the best candidate for these, these kind of procedures like transplant or, or gene therapy. How do we do that? 
<clears throat> and a big part, I never want to lose this, is not just the medical team, but the community, you know, mm -hmm. um, as mm -hmm. people are going through these very, um, very uh, nuanced, very complicated, very challenging medical experiences and procedures. We need people who are not in the healthcare system, right? That sometimes patients often have to push against when we think about trauma-informed care to support mm. and lift them up. Mm. It's that community piece. So those are, are some of the things. And then for me, what my work focuses on is, okay, we have all these new innovations. We got these evidence-based guidelines. How do I work with the people to get them to them? Mm. You know, so I do health outcomes research, but particularly in adolescents and young adults, because I, I shared a little bit early in the program, that's when the mortality starts to rise mm -hmm. to try to understand how do we support them as they go from that peds to adult care? How do we engage them in their care? How do we give them, how do we optimize their health literacy to make sure they understand what's going on with their bodies? How do we mm -hmm. support the parents and family mm -hmm. and, and letting their little one who they love, have worried about, are afraid for sometimes, take on their own care and management? How do we introduce these new therapies? How do we leverage what all that we have in the healthcare system to make sure they have better outcomes? So that's new therapies, gene therapy, which I know Reverend Curry wants to talk about too. And then also, you know, the research I do is really putting that into practice. See, I think, I think that your research, when you came to us, you were researching with adolescents mm -hmm. and yes. we said, wow, and so the topic that Tom and we're trying to move on to is how mm -hmm. does the community somehow support the research that's so necessary? Like, like you said, how do you get, how do you convince somebody that maybe they would be a good candidate for this? And what kind of ways can the community back that up? You know, yeah. um, I mean, if, we, if you said the, eradic the eradication of uh, sickle cell is somehow in, in our hands, Mm -hmm. that we really need to push toward this as a goal. And so we have all of these gene research projects going on. Um, how, how could we help recruit for those? Uh, how can we uh, help people to understand how the importance, you know? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and again, I mean, there, like you said, there's so many levels. Is it for young people or the older people? Is it for newborns is, you know, this gene therapy is 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 radical, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's so, so exciting too. Yeah, it is. It's it's mm -hmm. amazing. It's amazing. I was told I was reading this book on um, the emperor of all maladies, mm -hmm. and one of the things they said at the end of the book about cancer is that they could take they could take your gene that the your genes didn't see the cancer cells in the body, so they didn't your your your, your autoimmune system would not attack them. So they could take a gene out of your body, mm -hmm. re-engineer it, so when it goes back in the body, it will help your antibodies discover the cancer cells. Now, to me, mm -hmm. that was like, wow, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that's CAR-T therapy, like using our own immunotherapy for many different conditions where we say, how do we leverage our body's own immune system to, to protect us against these um, un un abnormal, uh, unregulated cells, which is what cancer really is. Um, I actually want to pose a question back to you. I mean, the work that you all did with um, helping us move forward trials in COVID in New Haven, 
you know, was one of the reasons that I don't care what my projects are. We coming to talk to the uh, YCCI <laughs> community ambassador. We need to get advice, okay? And I would encourage that for any of my colleagues to do research in this community because there are going to be gaps that we see as scientists that you all will see, not just from practical experience, but from lived knowledge. And so when you tell me, Reverend Clayton, how do I get more community members engaged in science? What worked for you all? How do I really do that? Tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, that's a loaded question. <laughs> it's loaded. That's good. That is really. Let me, Doctor Calhoun. Let me give. Let me filibuster and give them some time to think about your answer. Uh, okay. To, to your question, what 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 kind of candidates are you looking for now to help you with your research? Uh, what what someone that's uh, early stage or has been dealing with yeah. sickle cell for a while or has a trade or? Yeah. So for me, um, and this is just the research I do, like me as an individual. But one of my goals as medical director is to support the development of new and innovative research for sickle cell here at Yale. And I think that is a goal of, I, I feel comfortable saying of our cancer center leadership as well. Um, and so while I'm looking at adolescents and young adults, I, we have some young people coming down the pipeline who want to look at neurocognition in adults, right? And understand what that looks like in adult patients with sickle cell who can have strokes. Um, and so the inclusion criteria that, or that, and then there's great work going on, on already, like I talked about in our pediatric section with sickle cell, um, and even some people looking at the immune system in sickle cell here. So um, I think that, you know, there are, are, there is a small but yet growing amount of, of research about sickle cell here at Yale that's really, really going to grow. Um, for me, I want, I think that there is a myriad of ways in which the community can be involved. I'm always um, inspired by Yale Center for Clinical Investigation and the um, like young ambassadors, these like high schoolers who are learning about clinical research. I got the chance to talk to these young students and they were mm -hmm. talking about creative ways for recruitment. And I was like, oh, yeah. are any of you guys available? Like, you know, <laughs> so I think um, engaging even our person without, with or without sickle cell, interested in research, giving them that exposure, they have great ideas. So if those young people are like, I wanna learn more and do more, they can help us even in, in learning study design and what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. And so then when we think about um, our community leadership, you know, um, just the knowledge and awareness, obviously about what sickle cell disease is, but also, hey, Yale is doing a study on this, they're actively recruiting, here's the info. Um, but also I think assuaging and, and um, talking to people that trust you all about the importance of trial mm -hmm. participation or research participation, because as you alluded to, we have been experimented on as a people mm -hmm. in the past. Mm -hmm. And when a person with sickle cell interacts with the healthcare system because of all that stigma, there's not necessarily an inclination to trust the person unless you know them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so how do we kind of like build that trust so it's a knowledge exchange. I'm very intentional about, it's not just getting a community part. There's stuff I know and stuff you know, and there's a big gap that I don't know and I need you to teach me. So I think creating a space for those things as well. Um, and then when it comes down to just frank study recruitment, you know, just, you know, asking the questions you need to ask, but not being afraid to enroll um, as you see things coming around and not just only being afraid to enroll, but sticking with it and stick, sticking Indeed. it through so that we can have all of our retention <laughs> um, to the end. Can I and, go um, back to that question you asked? 
uh, earlier. Absolutely, absolutely. It, I, I, we gave you the time to think about it. So absolutely. It, it's, it, it goes further than just uh, clinical research. One example that I will give is that there was a young couple that was having some trouble with their marriage. And, and the problem was that the young lady was saying that he, he seems to not want to be uh, close to her. He, he didn't want to be bothered. He'd come home and go to sleep. He comes home from work and goes to sleep. And so we had a, I had a conversation with him, a conversation with her. And, and these two people, they love each other, but they're, they're the problem here. And, and the problem was this, this gentleman gets up at 3.30 in the morning to go to work. And, and then by the time she gets home at six o'clock, all he feels like doing is, is getting his dinner and going to sleep. Um, and so my answer was very simple. Look, the man is tired. <laughs> so you gotta figure something else out here in terms of, you know, pick a day on the weekend so you guys could go somewhere and things should, should be better. So that's just, that's a minor thing. But, but those are the same people that will come to us and say, my son has sickle cell or my daughter has asthma. It goes back to what you said earlier, it's the trust factor. We're the same people in the community, the same pastor that's baptizing their babies. We're the same people that are uh, marrying their young adults. We're the same people that bearing their loved ones. So when we have been trained some 200 hours, is that correct, Dr. Perry, in clinical research, and when we, we're not doctors, but we have knowledge of certain things, and when we share these with our parishioners and with members of the community, that oftentimes they will listen. And, and when we listen to people, that, that's, that is another key, listening to people. Uh, with, with, with in terms of sickle cell, if, if the medical profession would listen to the patients because they don't look like they're sick, they don't look like they're in pain, they don't look like they're going to die, but they do. And so uh, Dr. Perry and myself and the ambassadors, listening is one major piece. They trust us, another piece and having knowledge of various diseases is another piece. Yeah, I think, about, I about think nine, nine, nine or 10 minutes, so let's kind of, anything that's on people's minds and spirit, let, let's share. You know, I think that Reverend Clayton is correct in, in, the, in the sense that it has to be collaborative. Mm -hmm. Like it can't be just the community and it just can't be the researchers. It has to be this relationship together and understood in a way as to, um, to have this commonality with regards to people who might be participants in the study. And it, and it can't be one-sided. It can't be just what the researchers say. And it definitely can't be just what the community, it has to be this, this working together. So there are a number of phases here, CC. One is, is that collaboration. Two is how do we change policy in order to get more funding for, for such a, um, mm a serious uh, malady within our community. I mean, what can we do? I, I was reading an article about ringing the bell. I said, well, I didn't see the bell in my area, but I'd like to give. <laughs> 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 but we got to get more people. And I, you know, it's like the, 
the, the wagon that makes the most noise gets the most attention. We've got to put, and so all of those factors go into, to, it should go into a, a succinct plan, not just one thing, but we should do it. How do we, how do we change public policy? How do we do re recruitment? How do we make it simple and understandable? And how do we get our communities to trust the research and the researchers so that we can really uh, better healthcare for all? And because, like you say, if it's, if we do it here, we can do it. And for mm -hmm. prostate cancer, breast cancer, I mean, how do we do this? And that's what yeah. that's what we've been working on. And um, and I just think that sometimes there's a hesitancy on the part of researchers to come to the community, and there's a hesitancy of uh, community people to trust researchers, like you say, because you know, medicine in America has been built on black people. And they're testing and using and you know all that kind of stuff that makes us suspect of anyone who seeks to want to do something good here. Um, you brought up a really good point about leveraging policy for funding, which is one of the things we all often talk about when it comes to like research funding and comparing to other rare diseases like CF. Um, and recently there was a bill that was passed, the Sickle Cell Disease Treatment Centers Act. And um, Cory Booker was like a, a sponsor of it. And um, Chris Van Hollen, who's in Maryland, I think, and um, a couple of US representatives, Barbara Lee and Danny Davis, to, to advocate for over 500 million in, in uh, grants annually to try to really reach at this disparity. So like, it's a really fertile time it's like finally mm. I'm like yes like <laughs> people are finally mm. paying attention but it's just the beginning y'all it's really mm. it's really just the beginning mm. one of the mm. other things that I was thinking about um, as I was listening was how do we support all right so we as people just in general we're humans we have we're complex we have layers and sometimes one of the things I've been really trying to think through and, and don't have an answer for yet so maybe we'll talk about it on the next iteration of the show but is how we support patients who really feel like the medical system isn't listening. And I, I would love, you know, like after I met um, with Leonard Jihad, there's like hospital-based gun <clears throat> intervention where a community mm -hmm. member comes in and is able to, while the person is here, mm -hmm. you know, in this space, be with them. I want to do something like that for our uh, people with sickle cell. Like when they're here, they're in pain, can can there be a community advocate to come in or how do we support them? You know, and I, mm. I don't have the great answers for that, but I know I have some great minds I'm sitting here with. So why have the space? <laughs> um, and if there any, is anyone listening who has like any, you know, formative ideas about how we really support our patients when they come in and they're going through these pain crises and are kind of like feel unheard, you know, how do I, mm. how do we as a team, as a program, you know, fix that. And I don't think it's going to be just providers. I think it has to be people from the community, like uh, Reverend Clayton was saying, wow. that trusted relationship. I, have, I definitely have some thoughts in that regard. And, and we have about six more minutes. I guess I wanted to say <laughs> that I'm going to publicly uh, commit to Dr. Calhoun and Reverend Clayton and Reverend Perry that I will find by tomorrow three people that are dealing with sickle cell that are be willing to tell, tell their story. Yeah. Um, so, so by, by tomorrow, I'm, I'm public, publicly challenging myself. You'll hear from me <laughs> with three people uh, that, that'll do it. Uh, but we have about, about, about six, six, five, five, five more minutes. So let, let's kind of continue the sharing. Um, 
any thoughts that you might have. Uh, Dr. Calhoun, share, share, just share with people uh, also that uh, Hispanics are a subject, you mentioned the diaspora and, and, mm -hmm. the, and the Caribbean islands. So share this, just not exclusively black folks that are kind of dealing with, the, 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 with this trauma and dilemma. Yeah, any place where black people got peppered across mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the world um, during you know, transatlantic slavery, and that was just like normal migration. Um, sickle cell can be prevalent. So, you know, whether I have patients from Puerto Rico, I mean, pretty much most island nations, um, because that's where, you know, we as, as Africans on the diaspora were taken um, during slavery. So, um, and so then also, there's also, um, uh, like in, in the Mediterranean nations can be a large population as well. So some people, um, you know, just because you, yeah. you don't look black, doesn't mean that you can't have sickle cell or trait, which is important, mm -hmm. especially when you're thinking about having a baby. So. Indeed. So, so it, it, go ahead, go ahead mm -hmm. You know, Please. so my daughter had sickle cell. I'm, a, I'm in the New Haven community and she has a pediatrician. Would that pediatrician be the person to treat her or would I go to, the, to, the, to your center, to the sickle cell center with that child? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so in most, so they're, they're not enough hematologists to care for sickle cell patients. That's the bottom line. And so we have to think about uh, training up our workforce, like we talked about, but also new and innovative models to make sure our patients get the best care. In major urban centers and cities, you know, there are specialized sickle cell programs. And if that is available to your daughter, then she should come see us for sure. But there's some rural areas where that's not available. And so the American Society of Hematology is working to say, how do we partner with primary care physicians um, to give them the knowledge that they need, need to give um, the best quality care? There's some things that require the care of a subspecialist. If someone goes through a major complication of sickle cell disease, I'm not just talking about pain, I'm talking about stroke, I'm talking about retinopathy, I'm talking about kidney issues, they need to see a subspecialist. Um, if it's, you know, some, but primary care doctors can prescribe hydroxyurea safely and should always have access to their colleagues, whether now we can leverage the power of telehealth, right? That's mm -hmm. one, one small mm -hmm. good thing we took away from COVID um, to, to make sure even our primary care doctors feel equipped. But in most major cities, there are sickle cell centers that patients can come and get that comprehensive care. You know, I, I, there, I was watching this program on, um, on heart disease with Eric Velasquez and his team. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they had some people, they had a presenter from Africa or Jamaica, and he was saying that how he partnered with Yale with their doctors so that when they had a, a person, all of these doctors could share in you know, the, the care uh, since they didn't have the, the, the quality of medicine and the, and the resources that the West had, this is how they were attacking the problem. And I think this might be a way for us because we're looking at a kiosk for the ambassadors in the community. And if we could do something like that, it might be awesome. That would be great. Two more, two more minutes, everyone. And I want to give Dr. Calhoun the last word. Uh, so let's share. Re Reverend Clayton, any thoughts? I want to give uh, Reverend Dr. Calhoun, Re Reverend, Reverend Dr. Uh, senior, senior Pastor Calhoun, we're, we're going to anoint you and, <laughs> and, and bless, bless you in, in telehealth. 
<laughs> teleministry. Okay. Listen, you know, at least elder. At least you can be an elder. At least something. You know, so get get on get on that that hierarchy somehow. I know, deacon, deaconess, deacon, deaconess. Yeah, deacon. Right, Reverend Clayton. I I just want to take a moment to thank Tom for this platform, and I thank uh, Dr. C.C. Calhoun for being so candid and so open with her mm -hmm. comment today. Mm -hmm. It has truly helped me and I'm sure it has helped our listeners. Mm. Much peace to you. Dr. Calhoun, I'll give you the, the, la the last word, medical Dr. Calhoun and then other doctors to be, <laughs> yeah. to be determined. Um, I mean, I echo those sentiments. I thank you so much for this opportunity. I think when I think about my patients, one of the things they feel most is misunderstood or not understood. And so the space to not just provide education, but for people to see like, hey, y'all, we are a whole community. We care, we love you. We wanna do better, not just the physician, but your spiritual leaders, your community leaders is so important. And so I, I am happy to be back. I can't wait to join again next year. I'm signing up right now. Um, and Don't I hope that we talk next week. But you know, I want to, I want to, um, collaborate, you know, I want our patient, I want you to find those three people with sickle cell that, and we yeah. want to hear from them, Indeed. you know? So, so I thank you. I just thank you so much. Indeed. Harry, Harry plays the music. So I'm going to push the envelope a little bit, Dr. Dr. Calhoun, and you've already kind of indicated this advice that the families and individuals in terms of family care and treatment, uh, you, you kind of alluded to this, but say a little bit more about the, the, the prayers and the wishes and the directives that you might want to share with, with families and individuals that are dealing with, yeah. dealing with this issue. Um, don't lose hope. Sickle cell patients and people with sickle cell are warrior, called warriors for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, the science, we're not there yet, but we're going to get there. The community is here for you. And I want to give you the best care I possibly can. So tell us what's going right. Tell us what's going wrong so that we can be the best for you because you're not by yourself. We, we go far together. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Thank you Tom. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. So great to see y'all. <laughs> As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm going to roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you're stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open curtains. Haters swerving because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down, I just got to get up, get up. This is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go. I'm never gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up.